that it's not uh, feasible. But here's the scenario. Ellen and I go into one of the local grocery stores. We want to buy a few groceries. And one of the things on the list, one of the things that we need is a case or two of bottled water. And one of the things that we look for, one of the things that we really like is pure water. Emphasis on the pure. So I reach down to pick up this case of water to put it in the cart. And as I pick it up, guess what jumps out of the middle of that case of water? A roach. And as I pick it up and I start to to move it towards the cart, this roach jumps out and I start to put that case. I go ahead and I'm going to put this case in the cart. And Ellen, what do you think Ellen is going to say to me as she flat-footed jumps on top of my head? She says, drop that case and grab another. Reasonable, but I'm not always that reasonable. I'm kind of ornery sometimes, as you know. How will she respond if I say, come on, honey, it's one roach, not a thousand? She's going to respond, one is one, what? Too many. How will she respond? Because I'm not going to let this thing go. How will she respond if I say, Honey, the roach didn't touch the water in the plastic bottles. The tops are still screwed on tight. One roach, it's perfectly fine. She's probably going to respond, That's disgusting. Get another case. Well, you know me. I'm not going to let a good thing go uh, without being... So I, I ask her again, Well, what about this? What if you grab one of the bottles, you can pour that untouched bottle, that pristine bottle of water into a glass that comes straight out of the dishwasher, piping hot and sterilized. How's she going to respond? Get another case or get another wife? That scenario, again, it's never happened, <laughs> is a short course on the psychology of disgust. The psychology of disgust originated with a fellow by the name of Darwin. We all know who Charles Darwin is. Lots of books have been written on the psychology of disgust over the years. And we all practice it. Believe it or not, we all practice it. We may not call it the psychology of disgust. What we might call it is the three-second rule. You know what that is, right? Food falls on the floor, you get it within three seconds, still edible. In short, though, the psychology of disgust is this. It's how humans create boundaries to keep themselves from becoming contaminated. How humans create boundaries to keep themselves from becoming contaminated. Dr. Richard Beck uh, uh, has written a really, really excellent little book on the psychology of disgust. And uh, it's one of many, but in Dr. Beck's book, he lists four components of contagion. They are, number one, contact. Contamination is caused either in our mind or not. Contamination is caused by contact or by physical proximity. It's, it's the perception of contamination. The roach never touched any of the water, the, the, the H2O that was in those bottles. The bottles maintained their integrity. The, the tops were screwed on tight. But the perception of contamination is real. So not only do you have contact, but you also have, as one of the components, dose insensitivity, which means it doesn't matter how minimal, it doesn't matter how microscopic the contaminant might be, 
if it gets in, it does the harm. I mean, what does a, a tiny little fly do when it lands in a big cauldron of soup? It's got to be thrown out, right? Dose insensitivity. And then number three is this idea of permanence. Once corrupted, there is no purification. There's nothing that you can do to rehabilitate it. You've got to throw it out. You've got to get rid of it. You've got to toss it in the trash. And then number four, very important, negative dominance. The idea here is that the pollutant, whatever it is that's, that's in our mind disgusting and repulsive, the pollutant is always stronger. Now, a characteristic of the psychology of disgust is that it contains a degree of magical thinking. It doesn't have to be logical. It doesn't even have to connect to the laws of physics. But it's there all the same. And another interesting thing is that the emotion of disgust is not something that we're born with, right? I mean, why do you always have to keep your eyes on your little children? If you're not watching, they'll drink out of the dog dish. If, if you're not watching, they're, they're going to... You know, a friend of mine recently caught his little boy, his little tiny boy, licking the bottom of his shoe. Just thinking about that triggers some of the reactions of, of disgust. And one of those is expulsion. It's revulsion. It's, it's the motivation to push away, to avoid, to kick out, to expel what it is that offends our sensitivities. That's the psychology of disgust. Cockroaches and water are one thing. But the psychology of disgust brings up an interesting question. What happens when disgust as a psychology is transferred to human beings? Another writer, William, uh, William Miller writing in a book entitled The Anatomy of Disgust, writes, Humans are most likely the only species that experiences disgust. And we seem to be the only one capable of loathing its own species. End of quote. Another question, what happens when the psychology of disgust, what happens when the psychology of disgust is transferred to human beings and incorporated into the life and the work of God's people, those that are called out to do His kingdom work. What then? A couple of examples from the New Testament. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with Him and His disciples. And when the Pharisees, when the Pharisees saw this, what did they see? They saw Him eating with tax collectors, tax collectors and sinners, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Another one, Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house, reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is what? Who is what? Touching. 
him and would know what kind of woman she is, that she is a what? Sinner. We've talked about the Pharisee notion of, of, of purity. In these, these two accounts, and there are others, the Pharisee notion of purity has put them at odds with Jesus and the kingdom of God. To the Pharisees, purity was about building divisions and creating separation between them and other people, especially those that they deemed to be some kind of a spiritual contagion, that to be in contact with them, to rub shoulders with them, was somehow going to pass on to them, transfer to them some level of impurity or uncleanness. It ended, in their minds, being made up about people based on surfaces and appearances and not real holiness. That's why Jesus said to them in Matthew chapter 23, Right there at the very end of Jesus' ministry on earth, we are just, just really days away from His crucifixion. And it's that last week. And Jesus is trying to get them to understand where they stand with God. And to these Pharisees, He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside... Full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will be clean. Think about what Jesus said to the Pharisee back in Matthew chapter 9 when He's sitting there and He's wondering why in the world Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Say those five words with me. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Let's say it again. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In those highlighted words, did you hear it? Jesus did not say... I desire mercy and sacrifice. What he says is, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, you know, as well as I do, from, from studying Old Testament books like Leviticus, that the point of the Old Testament sacrificial system was not about killing an animal in order to get forgiven. That's just slaughter. The point of the sacrificial system was to instill in your heart, mind, and soul that another living creature had to die in order for you to live. That's why the instructions in Leviticus chapter 1 is that when you brought that animal to be sacrificed for you. You just didn't hand it over and walk off whistling a happy tune. You were there when that animal was put to death. The instruction was you put your hands on that animal. The idea being that there was no way you could escape the fact because you were in this tangible, kinetic kind of a relationship with that animal. You were touching it as it died for your sins to be forgiven. That God in His mercy is sparing you in order to love you. 
but at the cost of another life. The hardness of the cure. There are so many people that kind of revolt from that. And it's not, it's not pleasant to think about it. And if you've been to Jerusalem and you've been to the temple area, you know what that must have been like with all of the sacrifice and all of the people. It's just blood. But the hardness of the cure should give us a sense of the hardness of the disease. You don't take chemo for a hangnail. You take chemo because there is death in your body in the form of cancer. So should not that mercy that comes to you in the sense of forgiveness and mercy and love and blessing create a giddy sense of generosity. That it create an overflow in our hearts of of that same kind of mercy. How is it that the infinite distance God's love travels to us leaves us arm's length from others? How is it that the people who are saved from their sins by mercy find it so difficult to be merciful with others. Which brings us to the text that Don read for us. By the time we get to Acts chapter 10, the promises of God's kingdom and the coming of the, with the coming of the Messiah has all come true in Jesus. The death, the burial, and the resurrection are now all facts of history. The Holy Spirit, 50 days after that, has been poured out on His people. But years have gone by now. That has happened in the past. By the time you get to Acts chapter 10, years have gone by and the church is not much distant from Jerusalem. Of course, there have been a few small inroads that have been made into non-Jewish people, but in the main, in the main, the the church is Jewish and it's not very worldwide. It's still very, very provincial. And then one day about noon in the coastal city of Joppa, Apostle Peter goes up on the roof of a house to pray. And he gets a little bit hungry, which in and of itself is really nothing strange. It's noon. It's time for lunch. Maybe Peter, while he's up there praying on the top of Simon the Tanner's house, maybe Peter can smell the food that his wife is preparing. But as this is going on and Peter is hungry and he's up there in prayer, Peter falls into a trance and he sees something that looks like this gigantic large sheep, maybe a tarp coming down from heaven. And it contains all of these animals, reptiles and birds. And there's a voice that accompanies that strange vision of this sheep with all of these four-footed animals and reptiles and birds as it comes down. The voice says, get up, Peter. Get up. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. Never. Peter is so disgusted by what he sees that he tells God, I can't do that. He is so revulsed by that, impure, unclean, that he says to God, "Ah, no, I I can't do that. The psychology of disgust in Peter is stronger than his hunger. And the psychology of disgust in Peter is stronger than God's command. But the voice has a response. Verse 15, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Conversation takes place three times and then this sheet is taken back to heaven and Peter comes out of the trance and he begins to wonder like most of us when we've had this really palpable 
lifelike dream. We know it's a dream, but it was so real. We, we begin to think about it. What in the world does that mean? Then the Spirit says to Peter that there are three men that are going to come down from the north, from Caesarea Maritima. They're going to look for you. Don't hesitate, but go up with them because they're sent by God. They come. Peter travels with them to the home of Cornelius, who is a Gentile. Peter is not a little uncomfortable being in the home of a Gentile. But then this Gentile falls at Peter's feet. And Peter says, get up. Get, get up on your feet. I'm just a man too. Don't, don't do that. And then he says, now imagine this. I mean, this is, this is so non-Western. I mean, if uh, uh, you know, you've invited somebody to your house and they come into your house and the first thing they say is, you know, I'm really uncomfortable being here. I don't like shag carpeting. Or I don't, you know, I don't like the smell of what it is you're cooking. I don't like the color of the walls. Black velvet Elvis, I'm not into that. You know, you can imagine, we just don't do that. We say, oh, hey, everything's beautiful. Peter says, you're well aware that it's against our law. He's basically saying, I'm breaking the law to be here. It's against our law for a Jew to associate with or even visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Now, what he's talking about right there has nothing to do really with salvation. It has more to do with proximity. So when I was, I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? All of this God activity, all of this God activity, the vision, the voices, you know, the people showing up just as God said it would be, all of these visions and voices, and Peter doesn't perceive that he's supposed to share the gospel with these Gentiles. Now, what is it that you have sent me for, sent for, uh, for me to come for? He still does not get that completely until he sees the Holy Spirit fall on Cornelius and his household. And when Peter talks about the experience of preaching to Cornelius and his house in the next chapter, he says this, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on us as he had come on us, uh, came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. And you know the rest of the story. Cornelius and his family were baptized into Jesus and the gospel in earnestness, is launched into the Gentile world. Now, two, very quickly, two lessons. There are a lot. Focus on two. The first is, the gospel only advances as far as our prejudices. The gospel only advances as far as our prejudices. Why in the world did God have to go to the trouble of putting Peter in a trance and tell him it was okay to eat the unclean animals in the sheet? It's because the disgust that Peter felt in eating the unclean animals was similar to the disgust he felt toward being in contact with Gentiles. Before God could break down the sin barriers between him and the Gentile people with the message of the Gospel, he had to break down some of the walls in the hearts of his people that hindered them from sharing that Gospel. Not saying that's easy. It's not. And Peter is going to struggle with this thing with the Gentiles for the rest of his life. You'll remember over there in the book of Galatians, Paul had to get on him later because when that circumcision party came up from Jerusalem into the region of the Galatians, of, of Galatia, Peter decided that it had been about enough time in the Gentile homes and he pulled back. But is there not something magnificent 
seen in the greatness of the Gospel when you have it shared between the most unlikely of human beings. Does that not tell us something about God? A little captured Jewish slave girl overcoming whatever repulsion and disgust she felt um, about her conquerors and telling a mighty Syrian general suffering with an incurable disease of leprosy about a God who could heal him. An uneducated, orthodox, Jewish fisherman with Pharisee proclivities sharing the Gospel with a Gentile Roman military officer and they become brothers in Christ. It somehow reminds me of the unlikeliness of a God who is pure and holy sharing salvation with somebody like me. Sometimes, my friends, the barriers to evangelism are not out there. They're right here. Number two, and we're done. The Gospel is the power of God for the salvation of every human. It is the power of God. Remember at the beginning of the message, we talked about the psychology of disgust. Disgust is about staying away from what we think can't be reversed and or rehabilitated and it will contaminate us if we begin to rub shoulders with it. We think that that's the negative dominant. But that's precisely what we do not see in the ministry of Jesus. Everybody else around Him is staying away from the lepers and staying away from the sinners and the tax collectors. What is it that Jesus does? He sits down and He has dinner with them. Table fellowship with the tax collectors and the sinners. What happens when He touches the leper? The, the, the uncleanness of the leper is not passed to Him, but the cleanness and the purity in His, his cleanness is passed to them. What Jesus becomes is the positive dominant. Jesus touches lepers and their uncleanness is not transferred to Him, but cleanness and healing is passed on to them. And that's why the Gospel is a power. It's a power that overcomes all of that. It is a power that reverses the effects of sin in human life. It's the light that overcomes darkness. It is the life that swallows death. It is the key that unchains people from slavery to sin. It's love that prevails over hate. It's the kryptonite to racism and bigotry. It creates fellowship between enemies and people that hate each other. It's forgiveness that overthrows guilt. It's the joy that conquers despair. It's the peace that crushes our fears. It's the welcome mat to heaven's front door. It's the hope of the world. And it is the truth that changes everything and everybody. Do you believe that? And that's what happens when Peter realizes that this disgust and re revulsion that he, he senses in the presence of the Gentiles is a hindrance to hearing the very message and knowing the very Savior that he himself literally would die to know and does later on. And what happens when a group of people decide, you know, that there's... there's there, there's no one who is outside the reaches or the boundaries or the influence or the words or the message of the Gospel. 
And that we become brave and courageous and overcome whatever barrier might be erected in our heart because of our humanness and because of our fallenness. And begin to understand that the Gospel is a power that goes out and is not defeated by anyone's sin. There is no sin that trumps the Gospel. There is no person whose life does not become rehabilitated and and the effects of sin and that person's life reversed because the, the Gospel is not powerful. When a church begins to realize that that is the part of the kingdom that they in that kingdom business, the human God's human project that they play, then people's lives begin to get changed and 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 joy and peace and God's praise and glory to his name begin to be magnified in this city. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. Come on up to the stage, Ben. Our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Maybe there are some ways that we can minister to you today through the Gospel. Maybe you've never given your life in trust and obedience and in faith to, to what it is that Christ has accomplished on the death and the burial and the resurrection on the cross and buried in the tomb and resurrected on the third day. Maybe you've never given yourself to that completely. We give you that invitation to find out how that can be possible for you today while we stand and praise God together. My Jesus, I love.